and welcome back to the TSDCA podcast. Here we bring you interviews, conversations, and explorations in the world of professional sound design. I'm Brandon Reed, and today we have an interview with sound designer and composer Gabriel Clausen, or otherwise known as G. In addition to speaking about his experience as a professional designer, he also shares with us his experiences with working in hip hop, the music production world, changing careers, and his plans to help further diversity in sound. We hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. I'm G. Clausen. I am a sound designer and composer, music producer. I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa, but I've been living in North Carolina since uh, 1997. Um, and I've been in Winston-Salem now, wow, since 2009. In Winston-Salem, I teach at UNC School of the Arts as well. Um, so that's right down the street from where I am currently. What was that initial spark for you when you first became interested in sound in general, whether it was like a music or like just sound design? There there are several uh, points I think that I can um, illustrate. The first is when I was young, like young, young, like baby going into toddler young, I used to build drum sets out of pots and pans. Um, and like Quaker Oats boxes and stuff like that and beat on them with wooden spoons, just pull them out. Um, There's a few pictures of me doing that. Um, And also like right around that age, there's pictures of me with headphones on. My pop plays guitar. I grew up listening to that. I took piano lessons, so I grew up listening to family members play piano, so there was that aspect. I remember also sound in movies was always interesting to me. I mean, I was young when uh, the first Star Wars movie came out and that was kind of, you know, new. But I also remember in uh, Back to the Future, there was one part of that movie where a tape is put into a Walkman and it's closed and it made like this coolest sound. And I used to take my little fake Walkman and like try to make it make that click clack sound that real crisp sound and it never would do it right and so like that was the first time I think I realized that there was something different going on (laughs) you know because no matter how many times I tried to do that it just never sounded the same and then you know beyond that uh, I went from actually playing piano um, as a young person to uh, playing percussion beginning in fourth grade and so like my journey is Kind of that, you know, (laughs) that's what it is, you know, as far as being a young person and and getting into it. High school, I really started getting into hip hop culture, you know, as as a younger person. But it was mainly for me about like the dance and and the art, the graffiti, the DJing and stuff. And then I heard Rakim rap. I heard Chuck D rap. I heard KRS One rap. And I was like, wow, that's like some real poetry. You know, I'd heard a little bit of it before from um, like Melly Mel um, with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, but I had never heard that type of poetry that those three MCs kind of brought. And I realized kind of the power that those words could have as far as your own personal expression, um, but also how possibly you can uh, move other people you know, or or paint pictures for 
people to understand, you know, ideas larger than just like love songs, you know, and dance songs and things like that. And so I had been writing poetry uh, for a long time and started crafting them more in rhyme style, probably maybe sixth or seventh grade, something like that. And then when I was in college, I met this MC named Trance from Chicago um, and a DJ named Blend from Detroit. And we made a hip hop group called No Wonder. Um, and we recorded in dorm rooms using uh, Fostex four track tape <laughs> recorder, you know, initially, and just building chops. So there were like two drum machines that people were transporting. Um, you know, Blend was a DJ, so we had turntables, you know, we had SM58s. And we would just like be in dorm rooms, like freestyle session, freestyle session, or we'd make songs and like try to craft them and make them on this little four track tape. But the crazy thing was like people wanted to hear it. They wanted those tapes. Um, and so we just started making more music. Um, unfortunately, um, Trance ended up leaving and going back home to Chicago. So it was just Blend and I. But the first full album that I created was with him. And we used uh, Roland W30 keyboard workstation. That was the sample, you know, the sampler that we used. And then we had the two turntables. We had an SM58. And then we had uh, two ADAT machines. And a quadroverb was the only processing we had. <laughs> so it was really basic. But we had recorded with someone who had a DAT tape machine. Um, we did like... I think we recorded maybe two or three songs with that guy. So kind of, that was the first like real recording that we tried to do. And so when we went back to our setup with the ADAT and stuff, we had a little bit of idea of what we're trying to accomplish. But um, we actually crafted that album by ourselves in an apartment in Ames, Iowa. <laughs> and, you know, again, it was something that people wanted. Um, so that was really good. We actually had songs from there that ended up on an industry compilation. We uh, did a showcase performance uh, for Motown. You know, we had some things that were pretty, pretty good that came out of that. He ended up moving, Glenn ended up, ended up moving to D.C. And I ended up moving to North Carolina. And so that group was kind of done, you know. Um, but I continued to uh, make music, um, have some more releases up to a certain point, you know, and, and involved heavily in the culture and the, um, the community of Durham, too, while I lived there. Um, that's where I moved to in North Carolina first. Do you still find yourself producing nowadays? Oh, yeah. That's still uh, one of the, my favorite things to do. I like working with different types of artists that have different types of talents. I love capturing, you know, those moments and then taking the time to to create mixes. Um, I like being in the room when music is created to kind of help point out, like, oh, that's catchy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's use that part, you know what I mean? And, you know, just try to encourage artists not to edit themselves, you know, while, while we're crafting, um, that comes later. Um, but the entire process of creating uh, music is always interesting to me. Collaborations like that are always interesting. And just doing it for myself sometimes is therapeutic. <laughs> I don't do it as much for myself because I don't have the same type of time these days. You know, but if anyone asks me to do something, I probably most certainly will say, yeah, let's do that. After learning from G what drew his interest to sound when he was younger, we then discussed his education and how he found his way into his first career choice. My undergrad 
degree is in history and my minor is in African-American studies. And so, you know, my undergrad was research papers and being an activist, basically. You know, um, that was that was my undergrad experience. If you ask anyone who was at school with me, they probably would say, yeah, that guy rapped. Um, he was kind of a troublemaker, <laughs> but he knew what he was talking about. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So my plan, <laughs> my plan was... Initially, you know, to be straight up honest, like my my first major was to be to have a degree in history. I mean, in uh, in business. Sorry. So I was like, I'm going to get a business degree. Not really thinking too hard about it, just knowing like that's what people do, <laughs> and they can make money, and you know. But I'm gonna tell you, uh, when I took finite calculus, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm. I think I've had enough of this. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, I'm afraid of math. It just was something so foreign to my existence. I I took that class like three times, and I think the highest grade I got in it was a C-. minus. It was just brutal. Around the same time, though, um, what I started to do is go into the tiers of our library and just start um, reading history, like reading history of Black people everywhere on the planet, <laughs> you know, and reading about various religions. And I kind of started doing that in high school. And then when I had access to all the resources on campus um, at Iowa State, I'd be looking at microfiche, <laughs> you know, like I'm dead serious. Like, And so I was like, I might as well just you know, get a history degree. And then I was like, I can be a teacher. So I did like student teaching, but that was kind of interesting too. And then when I was done and had my bachelor of science degree, I was like, I guess I'll go to law school <laughs> and I was going to go and like be a civil rights attorney. And that's what I was thinking because that kind of fit the fight the system type person I was. And I met uh, my friend Chris early on Chris had worked with Bad Boy, uh, with Heavy D and the Boys and CL Smooth and all these artists up in New York. And I met him and I played the No Wonder album for him, the one that we made in the apartment <laughs> with the workstation and everything. And he ended up taking our last box of those and going out and selling them in Durham. And I ended up recording a single um, that actually ended up getting some uh, regional airplay back when radio stations used to do that. And so then I started recording another album at that point, and I dropped out of law school at North Carolina Central University, which is a great school, by the way. Um, but I dropped out because I was like, you know, this thing will take off. Well, like, there's a combination of many different reasons why that didn't kind of manifest. Although in a, a window of about four years, I was able to, you know, go on tour with the label, kind of see what the inside was there too, the difference between an artist and a songwriter or producer and, you know, engineer, like the differences between these things. I started seeing that <laughs> and kind of, you know, being an artist is everybody sees like the good things about that from people who actually made it, you know, and have a following and everything. But the lives of most artists is not that. And, you know, to the industry, artists are disposable. You know, there's no A&R anymore. There's no artist development anymore. And this was kind of at the beginning of where we are now. But I know when I was trying to um, 
create my own music, I was always searching for beats from other people. And the crazy thing is, like, I made beats as an undergrad and recorded music, but there was, like, during that same period, like, that same five-year period, I'm looking for beats from other people. (laughs) I'm looking for other studios. Like, I'm looking for other... And then, like, trying to find studios, trying to find the money. All the rigmarole you have to go through to create music um, at the time, I just kind of got tired of that, too. And so, like, maybe I should just get Fruity Loops and figure that out. And then maybe I need to figure out what engineering is. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, what what is student engineering? Like, how can I make my stuff sound clean and crisp like it sounds when I go to certain studios? And I ended up learning that, you know, much later. So while I'm working on the production chops, I'm learning studio engineering at the same time. And so I'm able to kind of see how they interact with each other. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's, the final journey through that whole studio process was learning from engineers. I learned from uh, John Taylor and Craig Brainwin, um, who were in Raleigh. Um, Craig is now at uh, UAB, I believe. He's a professor there. So you you graduate with your history degree in your in your minor, and that's when you start doing all your all your touring stuff. Nah, so I, the that stuff happened when I was just out of law school, like after I dropped out of law school. So like. During my undergrad days, we were doing shows like everywhere in our little area, you know, a lot of shows. I mean, it it was great, like shows with live bands, shows with just DJ, like every every type of way. Um, But it wasn't until I moved to North Carolina where other opportunities opened up because in Iowa, there is no entertainment industry and no connection to anything really. Whereas here, there's uh, connections to New York everywhere, you know, And so it was at that time when I was able to finally be in the Universal Building, (laughs) you know what I mean, in Manhattan. So, yeah. We then discussed how G went from working in hip-hop and music production to pivoting into the world of theatrical sound design as he earned his MFA at North Carolina School of the Arts. I knew nothing about theater. I mean, I'd seen a couple plays, but nah, it, it was never on my radar. And what happened was, After I learned studio engineering, like the same curiosity I had about how do I make this thing sound crisp, like the studios I like to go to, as opposed to the ones when I get it back, it sounds like I could have did it. You know what I mean? So the same questions remained and I wanted to know how we apply everything that I'm learning here to a live situation, like a live performance, because the same issues and problems exist. You know, you go to a house and you can tell when it's a bad engineer because everybody sounds like they're underwater, nothing's in time, you know what I mean? But I didn't know though even enough to say that. I just knew it sounded bad. <laughs> so how do I figure that part out? And that's when I, I actually sent an email to David Smith telling him my journey and how long I'd been out of school and my background or whatever, and he interviewed me. He was like, man, you might as well apply if you only live 10 minutes away. <laughs> so so I did and I ended up interviewing with him and I shared like music that I made and some film sound design that I did. And he shared some stuff that he had made and it was a good rapport and I ended up, you know, being admitted. And so I knew nothing about theater. I'm in my classes and I don't know these terms. I'm sitting in drafting class and the professor Dennis Booth is talking about legs. And I don't, I have no idea (laughs) 
what he's talking about. So th- there were so many things like that where I just, the learning curve was pretty steep as far as nomenclature. But the beauty was like everything I knew about music and production, as soon as we uh, got into the second half of what is the script analysis class where we actually start editing content, and we did like the, when I saw what the first exercise was, I was like, oh man, I've been doing that for 20 years. That's sampling. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's sampling. You know, um, and when I saw that and knew that I could do that, and then when we started getting into like composition and stuff, I'm like, oh man, I can have a ball doing this, you know? Yeah, so it was exciting and it still is because it's really new to me. You know what I mean? Like theater is still really new to me. I got my MFA in 2015, but all the things I've been able to do with sound and also all the people I've been able to meet, it's definitely one of the best decisions I've ever made <laughs> was to go to grad school um, at such a late age. And that's the other crazy thing is like, I didn't even know the reputation of the school. I just know, I just knew they had this program, you know, and it was close. That's all, that's kind of all I knew. Like, that's how wet behind the ears <laughs> I was. Because now, of course, I know what the School of the Arts is and what it represents and all the people that are working everywhere. And, and it's beautiful to be a part of that, actually. I didn't even know it was sound design for theater. I just knew it was sound design. And I didn't know anything about David. I knew of Jason Romney simply because I saw uh, one video that he made. I forgot what he was teaching. It might have been like wave propagation or something. I I saw something that he did that he taught. And so I, I was familiar with that name. I didn't know David at all. Like I didn't, I, I'm telling you, I, this was like a blind date. You know what I mean? (laughs) During uh, my last year of the MFA program, I was the sound supervisor at Triad Stage. So I was the, you know, the house engineer. And I also designed shows there too. So like while I was in school, I was able to to design some professional um, shows, you know, at at a good theater. You know what I mean? With great creative people. So... I already had something in my bag um, when I graduated. <laughs> so I was able to to do some freelancing um, in some places. I also, I taught at Wake Forest for a semester. I taught at um, Guilford Tech at the same time during that semester. And then in spring 2016, I started teaching at the School of the Arts. David went on sabbatical. Um, they needed somebody to cover some of his work. And then when he came back, Jason got put on some committees and boards, so he needed someone (laughs) to cover for him. And so, you know, I've been teaching there, you know, at least a class a semester since then, while also freelancing in any way I can as a sound person, not just theater, but like film and music, like whatever, whatever I can be involved in. I did a DC. Um, I've also done shows in my home state of Iowa. Um, I also did a, a Providence yeah, some places. Most of them are, you know, in North Carolina um, because I'm teaching. I, <laughs> you know, um, you can't. My whole plan before COVID was to freelance 100% this season um, and not teach and just see, like, how much can I really do? You know what I mean? But um, obviously, that is not the situation now. But yeah, I did um, uh, I did a world premiere of PYG um, or the Miseducation of Dorian Bell at Studio Theater in in, uh, D.C. That was one of the great experiences, you know, of of my theater time. That was exciting. 
Um, I got to use hip hop. I don't get to use hip hop a lot in uh, in theater, but I have been able. I did Skeleton Crew at Playmakers. That's Jay Dilla all day long. So that was great. And I just, you know, add some mechanical percussion to, you know, the whole thing. Um, so that was, I think, the first time I actually was able to use like hip hop through the whole, through a whole production. And PYG was another opportunity to do that. Native Son, I did some similar hip hop type things within it, <laughs> but not the same as, you know, those other two productions. So, yeah, anytime I get a chance to to do some hip-hop in theater, I'm going to do it. I know some people are, some designers are scared of drums, and I'm not. But I, I know, you know, there's some sound designers that just, they don't think drums add anything. They think it takes away. And I'm like, mm, I beg to differ. <laughs> like that whole um, Afro-pop song that was in the folder, that's all percussive instruments. Everything. I love stuff like that, but I play drums, so. After learning about his transition into theater, we ended up discussing mentors and who inspired him back in his hip-hop days and to his current work here in theater. I mean, I'm inspired by uh, what I consume. So, but I also read about those people too. So it's not just I'm consuming their craft. I also, you know, read like, who is this person? Um, what other things have they done? But I mean, just in general, like, you know, Quincy Jones is always, always uh, at the pinnacle as far as production in my eyes, just because of how diverse his content is um, and everything and in every role that he's played. And then, you know, other people I listen to that have things that, that I was able to uh, learn from as far as like how they mixed and stuff like that. People like Tom Dowd um, and Les Paul, who kind of were originators of multi-track <laughs> uh, recording. So kind of seeing how they had to think ahead about a lot of things they did. Um, I don't plan that well, but it's interesting when you have to make decisions beforehand. Um, but watching the development of that, seeing how Dark Side of the Moon was recorded, uh, watching a documentary about that was very enlightening to me. Listening to... Uh, records with headphones in the 70s, just like albums that were, they were taking so many chances and exploring everything because anything other than mono was new. <laughs> so, so you know, you have these weird mixes where like the drums are all to the left, you know? Yeah, but again, like when you're mixing with three tracks, what are you going to do, you know? But yeah, um, all those different things that I was hearing, like listening to Cat Stevens albums, um, how things were uh, localized and separated in that in the mixes, or like the Beach Boys, how the harmonies worked. So you know, it's more of like the work is is inspiring as much as the people. Because if I if I like something, I'm gonna go and look and see how they did it. When New America, Erica Badu's album came out, it's called New America Part One. They made that by sharing files, and they had. MP3s, AACs, AIFF, Wave, like every single type of file you can share while they're building this. And there's multiple producers, multiple musicians across the country that are like contributing to this project. And you couple that with uh, Erica singing the lead while she's lying down in the couch in the control room <laughs> with the monitors on. And figuring out, like, how did, how did they engineer that? 
You know, what kind of math is that? Let me dig into this. So like a project like that, it's more than one person that's doing that. You know, there's a lot of decisions being made. But when you look and just see um, how they were able to put that thing together in the final product, that is as influential as like any single person. That entire process to me was amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. Like one of my favorite songs is uh, the version of The Wind Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix that has a xylophone in it. And it's mixed crazy like that, too. Like, you can actually go in and separate the guitar out and just use the guitar if you want to sample it. It's crazy. Yeah. Nah, because I, you know, I didn't know enough. I still don't know enough. You know, um, I'll hear, like, someone had seen my work or heard me in an interview or something, and they'll say the name, and they'll be like, do you know who that is? And I'm like, nah. And they'll be like, that's such and such. And I'll be like, oh, like, oh, shit, like, for real? <laughs> um, so I don't, again, like, I still don't know enough. Like, I still don't know enough people. I haven't seen enough plays because, you know, teaching and, and doing your own shows, you don't have time to go and see other people's work. And when I was in school, I was in school. So I probably, outside of the stuff I've worked on, I might have seen a half a dozen plays, to be honest. So it's hard for me to have any frame of reference, even for what I'm doing. Like, personally, I don't even know if what I'm doing is right. I just do it. And if it works, then it works. And if I can keep working, then that's all good. I try to encourage my students, you know, like, make it do something. It's something they'll hear me say all the time. Like, just make it do something, and you can always back off. But if you don't do that first thing, you know, there's nowhere to back to. And it's easy to cut. That was, a, that was a hard thing coming from being an artist to a designer um, is cutting something that you made. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, once I learned the value of that, now, you know, to me, it's editing. So I'm going to try stuff. If it doesn't work, I won't do it. Or maybe part of it worked, but I'll never know if I never try it. That's, that's the main thing. On that note of learning how to let go of sound cues, we began to discuss the similarities and differences between producing and theater. Well, um, there's a lot more planning that goes into any type of theater design as opposed to an artistic endeavor. Sure, you, you might have deadlines to meet when making music, but there's the chance for discovery along the way. Um, there's a wider margin in creating music than there is in creating theater because in theater, you're all telling the same story and creating music, you're sometimes just trying to figure out what the story is <laughs> in the beginning. And so there's a lot more leeway. As far as like the sound of it, theater's the inverse of mixing down the two tracks. It's blowing everything out, you know, and having everything separate. Processing, we definitely use a whole lot more compression in studio production in theater, because theater is about making things sound transparent. Um, and in studio, you are coloring and coloring and coloring almost everything. So um, that's, that's a huge difference, too. Knowing how G transitioned into the world of theater at an older age than most, we began to discuss how that affected him and if he had any advice for those who want to switch careers. I'm definitely way older than the average yeah. I mean, anyone who wants to do anything that is not destructive should do it. I mean, it is never too late to explore yourself, to improve yourself, to learn something new. You know, the obstacle is the cost, always. 
you know, so that is not to be taken lightly uh, because it it is not cheap. But if, you know, if, if you have a curiosity, an intellectual curiosity, then you should satisfy it. I, I really believe that because there are a lot of things you can find out about yourself. Um, there are whole new worlds and avenues that will open to you. I am blown away by the amount of new people that I know. And for a lot of people my age, you don't really meet new people. So that's beautiful. And meeting other creatives. While I was rapping, I was, you know, I had a day job. I was making all right money, you know, <laughs> working for a testing company, which is, that was a fight every single day. But I was comfortable doing that. But if I would have stayed in that environment, then, you know, I would have just been stuck. You know, that's how I feel. And I don't think anyone should feel that way. I think if you have an intellectual curiosity or a drive or there's something you want to explore, then just like go do it. There's nobody that will stop you but for you. After that wonderful advice, I then asked Chi his typical approach to the sound design process. I used to like do a script analysis and I teach script analysis. So if any of my students listen to this, do your script analysis the way that I tell you to and turn it in while you're in school. After you're done with school, you'll have your own way. So now that that caveat is done, yeah, because you have to do it that way to figure out what the hell you're doing. You know what I mean? Like you have to do it the long way first and then figure out. So when I get it, I print it out. I'm an analog dude. So I print it out. I invert the entire script so that the printed page is on my left and I have blank page on my right. So now I'm prepared to do my version of my script analysis. So I'm going through looking for need, needs and opportunities. So I'm underlining in places where I think I need content, right? Like pre-show, you know, <laughs> pre-show out, you know, top of show, whatever this is. With And then I'm figuring out like environmental stuff as well as underscoring opportunities. And all I'm doing is writing general descriptions. Like I'm not being specific about anything. I'm just like, have a show, we're in a storm <laughs> outside or something, you know, and then, um, you know, underscore or question mark, something like that, right? And then later on, I might be like romantic underscore or question mark. So that's all I'm doing. Like I'm going through the script, I'm reading it. And at the same time, I'm identifying the needs that I know are there and then other possible opportunities. So I do that once and then I go through one more time, a little more carefully <laughs> and see if there's anything I'm missing. Once I have that all mapped out, and that's pretty much like my script template now, then I start thinking about like content choices. And in this realm, I vacillate between environment and music based on what I feel like that day. <laughs> so I don't, I don't ever pigeonhole myself into like just doing one thing. So I'm finding content based on those general descriptions that I laid out and I'm creating folders with labels for all of this stuff. Um, the music part, like I spend a lot of time listening. I listen to, I know I listen to between 100 and 500 songs for every show, every play that I do. Not films, because that's a totally different thing. But um, for plays, yeah, between 100 and 500 songs, even if I only keep 12 to 20 on deck. I have listened to enough where I know what this thing sounds like. Like, I know what this era sounds like. I know what this place sounds like. And that that kind of informs my decision. I do, uh, and my history degree comes in handy because I do research. 
about the place and the time and the people. Like, who are these people? Where are they living? What is it like at this time? So it does, you know, my my degree comes in handy for that. And of course, having discussions with other designers and the director and trying to figure out like how to put this thing together. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, leading up to tech, if there's any content a director needs early, I, I'll concentrate on that. That's rare for me. But every once in a while, like, there's some choreography that might need to happen or something like that. So I, I'll handle that early. But everything else, I just let it marinate, you know, and I have, I'll have options for everything that I do. I will have, like, five options for that one romantic underscore <laughs> moment, you know, and just, just have, have things available. So if something doesn't actually work right, and, you know, as a sound designer, when you're watching, you can tell if it's going to work or not. And so I can go to like plan D <laughs> on this one, but I'm building my QLab template based on that script template that I created. And so I'm putting numbers in my script now as I'm adding the stuff in QLab. And in QLab, I work with almost extensively lists because that's just, it, it's more or organized and it's more efficient to me if I can just point at that thing instead of like loading it up in my main list. So I'm creating lists that I'm going to use. And then I'm creating like the basic template. So I have everything in the right place. I have what I'm going to try first. But then I have backup folders and files of other stuff I can drag in. And then I, uh, I wrap that folder up and then I'm ready for tech. So, yeah, I'm laid back. I, I just, my tech process is I let the director know, like, I'm going to try underscoring, you know, because I like to hold on to underscoring. I like to not show it until tech. And there's a reason for that for me, because sometimes a production or a show and like actors, they get kind of comfortable and rope with things. And if I introduce a new element, all of a sudden it becomes a different experience. And I love seeing actors react to sound. My favorite actors are the actors who do not ignore sound and lights. You know what I mean? They're the ones who, we all see it, you see it too, and you embrace it. And so, like, I try to hold on to underscoring and then introduce it in tech so they have something new to play with. And it's based on the timing. You know, I try to go to rehearsals, you know, a couple times before we get to tech so I can see the pace of things, how things are moving. So it's not out of their world. It fits. And I just, I just love that initial reaction to it. You know, I've only really had like one or two directors that like the underscoring before tech. All the rest of them, they're like, oh, yeah, play. Come and play at tech. And I do. And, you know, part of that actually comes from working, you know, at Triad Stage, you know, because the creative style there and the collaboration there, there's a lot of trust. Um, and it helped me in particular get more confidence that some of my choices are good choices because they always... Um, except for one show there, <laughs> they they always do encourage you to push the boundaries and like try this and try anything. Um, so I so that's how I kind of grew into it. I would kind of say my time at Triad earlier would be like my adolescence in theater, <laughs> you know. And now I'm now I'm kind of a, a young adult. We then discussed if he felt that he made the right career choice. Yeah, um, the first show I did made me question if this is what. I should be doing. But after that, my experiences, you know, have been have been good. I did um I did this play called Born Bad, uh, written by Debbie Tucker Green. 
And it was part of uh, Paper Lantern Theater. It was a small theater group in Winston-Salem. Amy Deleuze, it was, it was her company. And the cast was, it was a dual cast. So part of the cast was from North Carolina A&T, and the other cast was from UNCG, and they swapped alternate days. That show had, like, no budget. I only had two channels to work with. Um, the set was constructed from PVC. The lighting was bare bulb. But that production and that group that worked on it, Donna uh, Bradby was the director from North Carolina a But that was, like, amazing that with limited resources, we made a show that ended up having to have a talk back every single night. It was so impactful. And that thing was so tight. It was exactly, it was like exactly 69 minutes every night. It was like, it, it was incredible. And it moved and it kept moving. And the audience felt like voyeurs the whole time. It was like watching people inside, of, watching a family inside of a prison cell, kind of eating themselves with interrogation lights over them. And my sound was like, I had this drone uh, that was Jesus Loves Me, the last note, and I dropped it down like three octaves <laughs> after it was sung in the beginning. That thing hung, and I I ended up manipulating that sound a lot, that drone. But I also that I had like a breaking wood and breaking glass to, to symbolize like the masculine and feminine getting broken inside of this family. Like I was able to be metaphorical as well as literal in one design. And all the elements just went together. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, this this is incredible. And that that was the first time that I felt like that. It was wonderful. And it wasn't even about how much money I was making. It was just like, man, this is great. This production is great. And then after I did that, shortly after that, um, I went to my hometown and did a, a show with Pyramid Theater Company written by um, Terrence Arvell Chisholm, who wrote PYG that I did in D.C. But he had a play called Hooded or Being Black for Dummies, and I got to design that while he was writing it. And that that was huge. That was huge because that ended up getting, by the time it was released in D.C., like it was getting rave reviews everywhere. So those two in particular kind of showed me a lot of things I could do with sound, but also... Um, what it was like to be involved in a production that kind of felt like everybody cared about each other. Even to this day, the Born Bad crew, like any of those people in it, there's an immediate recognition that we were part of something really special. During the 2020 TSDCA annual meeting, G helped lead a discussion on diversity in sound design. During this session, he mentioned his plans to open a school for BIPOC students interested in pursuing sound. Yeah, so when I did um, Skeleton Crew at Playmakers Rep, uh, the director of that show was uh, Valerie Curtis Newton, um, who heads the department at University of Washington. And the um, lighting designer on that show was Portia McGovern. Portia keeps all of the racial and gender demographic information from Lord Venues. Yeah, and Valerie, Val went into a program that hadn't graduated a single Black woman in like over a decade. I forgot how long it was. It was like 10 or 12 years or something. And when she took over that department, you know, by the time I worked with her, she had six Black women graduates <laughs> of her program. And I, so during this production, like I have the privilege of having conversations with Val and Portia. 
And it's two, it, they're related. They're not the same, but they're related. So Val, you know, Val taking the initiative, she was like, there has to be an intention and an attention on um, what is valued and what you're trying to achieve. She said, I came to Washington and I knew that I wanted Black women in our program and I wanted them to finish. And she made it happen. Like she did whatever it took to create a situation where that would be successful. And she also told me like, and if they're gonna, you know, have you do outreach and, and EDI work, like make sure you get paid for it. <laughs> you know, she's like, she's like, it's a job, it's an extra job. You know, my my job is to teach, but if they want me to do this extra stuff, then they're gonna have to pay me. So like the value of the work, you know, the value of the work. And then with Portia, um, she's sharing me the demographics in the Lord venues, and I'm like, man, this is not right. Like, there's many reasons why it's like this, <laughs> but this, it can't be like this. So, you know, I, I'm seeing like, uh, you know, only 10% of the sound designers are are identified as with she, her pronouns. Um, but then less than 6% of sound designers are designers of color. And then less than 3% are Black specifically. So I'm looking at that. I'm listening to Val talk about, you know, how she took action at her school. And Portia and there's another graduate of our program, J. Shell Johnson, who does consultancy work. So they're like on the industry side, you know, trying to do what they can. Val's in the higher ed side. And meanwhile, at my school, by this point, we had three years with no Black students at all in our program. And so... I start think I had thought about starting a sound school a long time ago, but it was just like a holistic sound school because one doesn't exist anywhere. And I put that idea that I'd been holding, you know, for for years with the discussions I was having with Val and Portia. And I was like, I think I can start a school. I need to start a school. I need to find a way to get more BIPOC kids into sound because the the film sound is about the same. <laughs> Video game sound is even worse um, than those percentages. So what I did uh, following that school year is during the summer, I sat down and I came up with a business plan and, a, and curriculum. Um, I have a board assembled. I'm moving to Charlotte later this fall. And once I have an address in Charlotte, then everything will be filed and registered. And at that point, I will be soliciting everyone <laughs> for support, for funding, for spreading the word, like everyone. Uh, because if I can, if we can make this work in Charlotte and it's successful, then I would like to replicate it in other places. And it's a nonprofit. It's not a paper mill. I'm not charging the community that is taking the classes as part of the program for students. Like, I'm not charging them anything, but we will have regular clients using our facilities and services that we will charge. You know what I mean? But in this place, we're, we're going to, um, you know, and we're, we're designing it from scratch, so we're going to have social distancing in mind while we're creating it because I don't want us to be in a situation where this pandemic or the next one would shut us down, right? So we're... we're you know, we're approaching it from this, but I see, um, you know, a small black box a theater, a studio A and B for recording and two classrooms and everything connected uh, with, with fiber. So we have networking everywhere, every classroom, every studio, um, you'll be able to connect in. You can record from anywhere, you know, uh, stream from anywhere, whatever you need to do. But that's that's 
what I'm putting together. And I assume it probably will take being in the situation we are now. I was looking at two years. I'm thinking probably three years before it would open. But I'm going to I'm gonna hit the ground running. I've already talked to people about this. Um, there are some people with deeper pockets that I think have gotten a wind of this already. And I'm just going to follow up uh, with anyone and everyone. So, you know, TSDCA, all your members, once this thing is up, everyone will have a standing invitation to come and see what we're working with. Because another thing we're going to do is explore like the next technology devices that people would want to use. Like we'll be a lab. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah it's a big dream. And it's, you know, it. whether I succeed or fail, um, I have to at least try, you know, and I have to uh, reach out to everyone and get support from as many places as possible because I think it can work, you know. <laughs> I think it can work. Like it, it's a plan and it, it looks good. And I think I've heard good words about it. But still, like, it's huge. It, we are, um, technology is expensive. The facility, the acoustic design and treatment, all of that is really expensive. And, you know, fortunately, like, the structure is, you know, pretty much a one-time thing. And filling it with uh, quality equipment is important. Um, but also, you know, we will have to keep up with the times to stay relevant. So, you know, it's expensive, it's big bucks, but I think it can work. We then began to discuss what happened when the theater world closed down due to the pandemic and how it affected his world. Yeah, so what I had lined up <laughs> was I was going to do the two shows I do in my hometown of Des Moines with, uh, with Pyramid Theater Company um, in the summer. Um, and then I was uh, going to do a play written by a poet um, in Durham named Dasana Hanu who is a Nasir Jones fellow um, at Harvard, like, and he's from Durham. He's, he's a, I used to do the poetry circuit, the spoken word stuff, and he's, you know, um, a legend in Durham. Um, so I was supposed to, he's, he was writing a new play about mental health in a black community, and I was going to do sound design for that at Central. So that didn't come through. And then it was just like, I don't know what's about to happen. <laughs> like, everything is shut down. I just... I don't know. And I know like even creating film is hard now. Like I'm I'm designing for a film right now, but the way that they have to be shot, like the extra time that everything takes is a whole different world. But luckily I was one of the fortunate small businesses that got a little bit of PPP. And when I say a little bit, I mean it was literally just what I would have been paid for those three shows. That's it. Cause I wasn't, you know, I'm not gonna cheat the system like that's all I need. But I was able to get that. So I was able to like create a bridge over most of the summer. And then I got the film offer from Pyramid. So, and, and now um, I'm teaching full time at the School of the Arts for the first time this year. So, you know, some stuff started lining up while other stuff was falling apart. <laughs> and this is the first time it's kind of um, usually, like I, when I was younger, it, it would seem like my stuff would be falling apart while the world was <laughs> getting better, you know, and now it's like the opposite. It's kind of crazy. But I, I am very thankful and grateful for the opportunities I have right now while a lot of people don't have the same. The discussion then moved towards what he uses to accomplish his work, both in the studio and in the theater. The theater computer, the MacBook Pro for um, theater, it's pretty much just uh, logic because I can edit really fast with Logic. 
like really fast with Logic. So that I have loop back on there if I have to do other things. But that's that's pretty much it. And then the Mac for my studio our production, I have I'm still working with Pro Tools 10 and I still have Logic 9 on there um, with various plugins. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much what I'm using as far as uh software. So my stuff for theater, I don't even use any plugins beyond what Logic already has. I have never found a use for much beyond that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't for theater, nah. If I can't do it in Logic, then I'm probably thinking about it wrong because most of the basic things I, I have to do with theater, I just, I, I don't need much more. But if I'm doing like production, yeah, on the studio computer, like I have, you know, Ozone Package, I have um, API plugins, SSL plugins, Waves. <laughs> I mean, you name it, I probably have it on there. It doesn't mean I use it. But I have it. I've found new uses for things that I've had for a while that I didn't really explore too much. But in this time, I've had more time. And now I'm like, oh, that's what Trash 2 can really do. Oh, that's cool. Um, I don't really take anything to tech. Like that, to me, that is a temporary situation. And I try to make all of my accoutrement <laughs> fit that mode. Like we're coming in here to do a job and we're going to leave. Don't get too comfortable. But for, yeah, my studio production like I always have to have my glyph hard drive um that's my main stay I do have uh sm7b that I like to use a lot for recording I find it works well with female rock singers and rappers of any persuasion then I have uh c214 I want the big boy but I'm not ready to pay for the big boy yet yeah I'm gonna get there I'm gonna get there Couple fifty eights, of course, and that's pretty much my mic locker. There's other mics that I that I can access, and then I I use a combination of headphones. I don't know, like I need to listen to material in different sources. So, like I have uh, Biodynamic nine nineties, but then I also have. Oh, hold on, let me look at the box because I need to get the number right. Yeah, the K five five threes, the AKGs. So um, I bounce between those toward the end of mixing because I don't mix with headphones, but toward the end when I try to figure out like the final separation of things, that's when I throw them on. And they have two completely different sounds. So between popping in and out of mono on my interface, (laughs) the other way I figure out if people can hear everything is to go between these two headphones. And so that's, that's usual. And then I have like a little Billie Holiday cardboard box on my desk and it stays there. To close out our conversation, I asked G if he had any advice for anyone who was interested in pursuing sound design. Um, I would say first, work with what you have and have access to now. Don't wait until you have some type of special equipment or education. Um, There are YouTube videos available to figure out how to use some of the things you have access to. I mean, there are some schools in the country where, um, you know, they have theater programs that have sound opportunities. It's something that you might want to look into. There are other um, schools that might have like a, a radio broadcasting thing program, or there's even a couple that push a T built two recording studios in. So there might be some studios where you have an opportunity to work with recording equipment. You know, whatever you have access to, your phone can record things. There are free programs like Audacity. 
Um, if you have a computer, you can get that program and use it for free and just start figuring things out. If you start to have a real curiosity about this as a profession, um, that's when you want to learn from people. Having someone actually teach you, they can show you or talk you through different skills and techniques is probably the most beneficial thing uh, that can happen to you. So there are places where you can learn. You can uh, enroll in certain schools. Community college is cheap. Some of them have little programs, somewhere to start. But the main thing is, you know, do some research. I reached out to somebody out of the blue and ended up in school getting an MFA in theatrical sound design where I knew nothing about it when I sent the email. So, you know, it's possible. And there is a wide ranging variety of different jobs in professional sound and different things you can do. We've talked a little bit about theatrical sound design. You have film sound design. You got video game sound design. You have broadcast engineering for TV and for radio. Uh, You have recording music, mixing music, mixing live events. Um, You have AV, which is a whole thing, um, audiovisual. And then, you know, within those, like you have editors, there's music editors, uh, recording editors for film. There are all these different positions. Boom mic operator, <laughs> you know, somebody just holding a microphone to record people for a film. There are all these different jobs within sound and within all of these um, areas where if you get a holistic experience and holistic education and explore all of these these different areas, you can find out, you know, which ones you really want to do, what you really want to explore. I mean, there's really no reason why you can't do all of them except for like the money thing. (laughs) And keep that in mind too. Like I would never push a student toward a paper mill to just go into a program where they provide loans to you themselves. Don't do that. And that's another reason why I want to start this school. Like I want to take that part off the table where you can learn that stuff while you're in high school and then figure out if you really want to do this. If you do, then there are other schools you can go to you know, or you can get your business degree, have this background with the sound stuff, and then you might want to go to grad school for it, you know. So, um, you know, explore uh, with what you have, create with what you have, look at YouTube. But if you really want to get serious, like find people to teach you. Well, thank you, G. This is, it's been wonderful, like getting a chance to actually catch up with you and hear a little bit more about your your backstory, man. This, this has been great. Definitely. Um, real quick, where can people find you? Um, right now, I do not have a web presence because I pulled my site. Um, because the next time you find me, it will be for the school, like on the about page for the school. This is what I am pursuing. I'm dead serious about this. Once once the site is up, I will let everyone know where to go and find me. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, thank you, G. Um, And for our listeners, we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the TSDCA. This episode was produced by me, Brandon Reed. It was edited and mixed by Florian Staub and scored by Kyle Jensen, with additional support from Josh Samuels. Additional equipment was provided by Shore. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the TSDCA, our home on the web is tsdca.org.